Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hey, everyone, and thanks for joining me for another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. So today I'm excited because we're going to talk all about how emotions, behavioral economics, and neuroscience factor into decision making for parties in mediation. And I'm so thrilled for today's guest. Today's guest is Lucia Cantor St. Amour. And here's a bit of background information about her. She's a member of the Neuroleadership Institute. She has specific training in behavioral science and how real people act in real conflict situations and decision making. Lucia is the founder and principal of her firm, Pactum Factum, which specializes in negotiation and dispute resolution, and a Mediate.com certified online mediator. Lucia has been practicing law since 1998. Ten years of her practice included regular clinical teaching positions in mediation and negotiation at UC Hastings and UC Berkeley Law. She has also been a visiting lecturer at many prominent law and business universities in the US and Europe and served for a number of years as an annual competition judge and mediator for the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris, France. And just this year, she launched her own podcast called The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation, which I should say, I am a fan, Lucia. I've recently listened to it. It's awesome. I love your style. I love your intro music. Um, definitely, you know, listeners, if you haven't checked it out, you definitely should. So with that, Lucia, welcome to the Mediate.com podcast, and thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you, Veronica. And, you know, I have to say that being ultimately just a kid from a small town in Illinois, you know, you've really made the big time when you're asked to be on the radio. So it's, <laughs> it really tickles me to be here. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited about today's topic. And so I know that you have studied and written about emotions, behavioral economics, and neuroscience, and how it all factors into decision-making for parties in mediation, which really fascinates me. Um, so I'm curious, what do you think that mediators need to know? Well, I guess you could consider this sort of a primer in neuroscience, emotions, and how they impact decision-making, along with understanding this myth of rationality. And it can all help mediators navigate difficult moments in mediation and steer parties towards a more productive path. And let me be quick to add that I am not a neuroscientist. I'm not even strong in the sciences. So I know for a fact that all mediators can gain a basic understanding of the crossover of neuroscience and dispute resolution. The starting point is to remember that when parties hire a mediator to help them, they are in crisis. They have most likely already tried to work out a solution and met with impasse. When people are in crisis, the brain secretes cortisol and increased cortisol levels impact a bunch of things like decision-making, risk assessment, rational cognition, focus, working memory. This is how much information a person can hold or process or use at any given moment in time, and also perception of threat. And then the brain responds by and large the same way for both physical threats, like a snake, and emotional threats, oh, she's going for full custody of the kids. And the cognitive response toggles between 
three fundamental levels of functioning. The reptilian, the fight or flight, the, the neural networks related to fear and survival. This is a very durable network. And then the paleomammalian, these are the social bonds and decisions. And the neocortical, this is the really high level executive functioning. So the exercise of law, engineering, accounting, science, etc. This is a neocortical activity, but decision making is a sub neocortical activity. So when someone suddenly shifts position and we think they're acting irrationally, it's that a different part of the brain, the non executive part has taken over. Even the common act of getting angry at one's kids is a core relational theme. And I'm going to talk more on that later if we get to it. Uh, left over from the reptilian brain, i.e. my progeny is in danger and I need to act. But if the executive or higher brain reappraises in time, it can ask whether anger is really the appropriate response to the situation. So think of how helpful a mediator can be if they recognize when this is happening. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, I read one of your articles about the brain's three goal system. Um, can you say more about that? Sure. The, so the brain employs a three goal system. Avoid, you're avoiding sticks. <laughs> okay, so threat, threats, penalty, pain. Approach, those are the carrots, those are the rewards. And attach, attaching to other people. This is our need to bond. Although we're wired to cooperate socially and to bond, we are very reactive to threats and the brain has a strong negativity bias. This means the sympathetic nervous system lights up like a Christmas tree, even at a whiff of a threat. And that means sticks are more impactful than carrots. And this is where we need to talk about the amygdala hippocampus system. It is primed to label experiences negatively and will flag a negative experience very prominently in the memory. With ambiguous communication, this means if a negative inference can be made, it will be made in lieu of a positive interpretation. The negativity bias is so sturdy that it takes five positive interactions to undo a single negative one. I believe the famous Dr. John Gottman is the one who said that. He's the psychologist who, you may have heard of him in the early 90s, studied married couples talking for 15 minutes about something pretty innocuous and then predicted with something like 94% accuracy the traits that led to couples ending up in divorce. So people will do more to avoid a loss then realize a gain. And the avoid system is routinely hijacking the approach and the attach systems. The result of threat reactivity is that parties in dispute overestimate threat and underestimate opportunity in their initial appraisals. If the mediator doesn't help them reappraise that the snake is actually a stick, the brain continues to pump cortisol and reinforce stress. The cost of not steering people towards reappraisal is that actions and decisions while feeling threatened lead to overreactions, which causes other people to feel threatened. And then you've got a vicious cycle. The approach system is inhibited and then limits options and 
opportunity. So, okay, blah, 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 here's your takeaway. <laughs> like, what did she just say? Back it up, rewind. Understand as a mediator that it's more likely that parties will deviate from rationality than be consistently irrational and know how to identify which part of the brain is working when and why. You can use active listening, we're all trained in that, right? Reframing and timing of breaks to help the party's brains reappraise and stop that vicious cycle. Yeah, that's all that's all really interesting. And I'm sort of as you're sharing all this, I'm reflecting <laughs> back on some of my mediations. And I mean, gosh, like especially the part you talked about, um, you know, pain versus like a gain, how you feel a loss more than a gain. I mean, I can remember there was one mediation I did. Parties were initially, I don't know, like it was probably a small claims case. So they were probably a couple thousand dollars apart at the beginning. And then at the end, it came down to a matter of like $50. Mm -hmm. And it did not settle over a difference of $50. Right. And that sort of reminds me of like, you feel a loss so much more than a gain, right? Because all the one party was thinking about is how they were not getting that additional $50 that they were losing. So that's fascinating. Um, you know, can you- That is say all too common a story, Monica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, can you say a little bit more about the role of emotions in mediation? I, oh, I could say a lot more, but, <laughs> but I'll keep it brief for today. Here's what I've learned from my 30 plus hours of training from the Paul Ekman group, actually. And Dr. Ekman's book, Emotions Revealed, which I, which I recommend to, to everybody. Uh, the core relational themes, I used that phrase a few minutes ago, these inform how we deal with people in the world. And our cell assemblies have over thousands of years created this sturdy, what he calls emotion alert database. And this database serves an important purpose. So let's take fear. It protects us. Our lives are saved because we're able to respond to threats of harm proactively without thought. Disgust. These reactions make us cautious about indulging in activities that literally or figuratively might be toxic. Sadness and despair over loss signals to others that we may need help. Even anger is useful. It warns others and, and us as well when things are thwarting us. Probably the most important nugget I learned from Paul Ekman's book, Emotions Revealed, and that can help mediators is this concept of the refractory state. This is the time during which our thinking cannot incorporate information that does not fit or agree with the emotion we are feeling. For example, have you ever tried to apologize to someone while they're still mad at you, Veronica? <laughs> yes. Yeah, how did that go? It's, Not so well. No, it's futile. A, a refractory state lasts an average of 20 minutes, as it turns out. And the person experiencing the strong emotion simply cannot take in any new information until the refractory state has passed. As a mediator, recognizing a refractory state can be key in terms of what you, the mediator, do next. When you identify the refractory state, understand that the 
executive level of the brain is not operating during this refractory period. And it may be time for a break and or switching to some sort of asynchronous communication. So here's the takeaway from all that. Rationality is a myth. Instead, human behavior and circumstances are predictably irrational. And that's the title of another book I recommend, by the way, by Dan Ariely. And it can demystify how parties behave in mediation and in life, if you understand this. Although we are experienced mediators and some of us attorneys, and we're well-trained in analytical reasoning, we would do well not to hail reasoned and analytical dialogue as the dominating mode of conflict management. Rational choice is just one approach to negotiation and conflict and not necessarily the most effective one where emotions, distrust and suspicions simply cannot be suspended even among people of goodwill and reason. And don't we all want to believe that we're people of goodwill and reason? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was just thinking back on other mediations, too. I mean, you talk about, you know, strong emotions, it seems like whenever there is, you know, this conflict between reason and a strong emotion, it seems like the emotion always wins. Like in my as I think back on my mediations, I don't think I have ever had a mediation result in agreement when both sides were in the throes of anger. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, that makes total sense when you talk about, you know, the, the um, refractory state. Um, so I wanted to talk about now I thought, you know, I've read a few of your blog posts about different cognitive traps. So I thought this would be a good point to talk mm. about those. Um, can you talk about, you know, what you mean by cognitive traps and sort of how that can help mediators in understanding them? Cognitive traps. Yes. So cognitive traps, first of all, I can't take credit for that phrasing. That was a term coined at the Center for Negotiation and Dispute Resolution at UC Hastings College of the Law when I was teaching there. At least I think that they, they coined it. Um, and it refers to the work social and cognitive psychologists have done for decades on how the brain processes information and what that produces in the outside world in terms of behavior. Uh, in the 1970s, two psychologists from Stanford University, Daniel Kahneman, who now is very well known, and Amos Tversky, started to study aspects of decision-making. Does the rational person make decisions based on an innate cost-benefit analysis? Uh, their work created a new discipline of science, now known as behavioral economics, which then earned them the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002, I think, somewhere around there. But Tversky had died by then, so technically the prize only went to Kahneman at the time it was bestowed. Anyway, according to behavioral economics, the rational person theory doesn't take into account all the reasons people behave the way they do. People make decisions relative to a reference point. And that reference point is the status quo, where I am right now. Kahneman and Tversky categorize their work into a set of common heuristics. In other words, shortcuts that the brain takes so that it can make decisions in fast moving everyday life. But many of these heuristics can also act as traps, cognitive traps in a negotiation if you're not aware of them. 
So can you give some examples? Like one of the ones that I'm thinking of that I think I come across all the time in my mediations is the confirmation bias, but I know that's not the only one. Can you talk about some examples? <laughs> okay. I thought you might <laughs> ask me that one. So, so yes, I can, I can, there are, I'm not sure how many there are. There are probably over a hundred easily, <laughs> but I will talk about a few of the most common ones. And you're correct. The confirmation bias is uh, high up on the list. And that's the tendency to search for or interpret information in the way that conforms to one's pre-existing beliefs. Um, and this can lead to statistical and even strategic errors. When people would like a certain idea to be true, they end up believing it to be true. Confirmation bias is particularly problematic because it does not allow a person's perspective to change, even based on evidence. It enables people with opposing beliefs to dig their heels in further rather than to adapt to their, the, the mindset to, of their surroundings. Consider the person in a workplace uh, where, there, where there's a personality conflict. Rather than talking to those people who might disabuse them of their negative impressions of the coworker, they usually gripe to people most likely to agree with them, right? Right. As, yeah, as a result, <laughs> their negative impressions become amplified in an echo chamber of agreement. The chorus they hear is, wow, she's awful to treat you that way. The complainer's blamelessness rises while the image of the adversary is demoted further into someone really unsavory. Yeah. Um, so what about like... I know other biases I read about on one of your blogs are like reactive devaluation, reciprocity, endowment effect. Can you talk about well, a little bit about those? The reactive devaluation bias occurs when a proposal, business or otherwise, is devalued or seen negatively because it seems to originate from a negative or antagonistic source. For instance, a plan or idea is proposed by another employee with whom you've disagreed in the past. In a negotiation setting, a party or mediation, a party may experience reactive devaluation of a proposal suggested by opposing counsel or the other party. They may dismiss the proposal or offer out of hand thinking, well, if this is such a good deal for us, they wouldn't be offering it. <laughs> now, this is an instance where a mediator can help parties evaluate proposals objectively, or the mediator can frame it as a mediator's proposal. Then you've got reciprocity effect, which is extremely alluring and one of the most powerful cognitive traps. It's, it's very simple. If someone does something for you, you'll naturally want to do something for them. When you offer something for free, people feel a sense of indebtedness towards you. For example, researchers tested how reciprocity can increase restaurant tipping. Tips went up to 3% when, or went up 3% when diners were given an after-dinner mint. Then tips went up higher if while delivering the mint, the waiter paused, looked the customers in the eye, and then gave them a second mint while telling them the mint was especially for them. In another study, 11% of people were willing to donate an amount worth one day's salary when they were given a small gift of candy while being asked for a donation, compared to only 5% of those that were just asked for the donation. Now, think of a recent 
invitation to a friend's house for dinner where your friend insists that you need not bring anything other than yourself. It's almost impossible to just show up at the door empty handed without bearing some contribution such as a, a bottle of wine. So a mediator can help parties understand that if they give a little, they are more likely to get concessions from the other side because the reciprocity effect is almost impossible to resist. And then I think you mentioned endowment effect. Uh, yes, indeed. Once people own something or just have a feeling of ownership, they irrationally overvalue it, regardless of its objective market value. People feel the pain of loss twice as strongly as they feel the pleasure at an equal gain. Okay, we've already talked about this. And they fall in love with what they already have and are prepared to pay more to retain it. For example, Scientists randomly divided participants into buyers and sellers and gave the sellers coffee mugs as gifts. Then they asked the sellers for how much they would sell the mug and asked the buyers for how much they would buy it. And the results showed that the sellers placed a significantly higher value on the mugs than the buyers did, right? Now, here's a variation of endowment effect. It's called Ikea effect. <laughs> this is a cognitive bias in which people place a disproportionately high value on products they partially created. In one study, participants who built a simple Ikea storage box, although side note, I don't find anything from Ikea simple to assemble. <laughs> they were willing to pay much more for the box than a group of participants who merely uh, inspected a fully built box. So here's the takeaway. If you are mediating, for example, a sale purchase negotiation, recognize that it may be difficult for the seller to objectively assess offers that fall below their personalized value of their fill in the blank, beloved vintage car, the house where they brought their first baby home. You can express empathy and help them reevaluate with objective standards. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, not mediation related, but I'm just thinking about like all the times I've gone to like garage sales, right? <laughs> you know, everyone's trying to, as a, as a buyer, you're trying to get a deal at a garage sale, but you know, as a seller, I, now I totally get it with the endowment effect where everyone thinks that their stuff is worth so much more than what it might actually be worth. Right. So that once makes you, total sense. Once you hear some of these cognitive traps, you have all these aha moments uh -huh. reflecting back over your own life, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I thought maybe one final topic we could talk about before we close things out is just sort of facts versus emotions and the sense of belonging. Um, so what's your advice to mediators about the balance of facts and emotions during conflict and just sort of general tips for mediators? Yeah, you know, this is a sticky wicket. And <laughs> this, this has been a real aha discovery in my own journey as not just a mediator, but even as an, an advocate, an attorney representing parties. Uh, according to social psychologist Mari Fitzduff, our wars today, quote unquote wars, appeal to instincts and savage emotions, not rationality. They're about identity, inequality, and exclusions. We have feelings and instincts to serve our survival as human beings through a few things, one of them being DNA, 
Another being hormones like dopamine, which I've mentioned, serotonin, oxytocin, adrenaline, testosterone, others. And number three, environment. In fact, Fitzduff discusses a gene variant called, I'm not saying this from memory, I wrote it down before we started recording. It's called the DRD4-7R, which affects dopamine. People with it are more likely to be open-minded and to enjoy pleasure from variety, novelty, and diversity. And fMRI scans and little asterisk there, because I want to say something more about that, show how variances in biology and genetics influence differences in attitudes and beliefs. Conservatives have larger amygdala structures, that is the emotions and fear center of the brain, and a higher startle response than liberals. They are more likely to support capital punishment, stricter immigrant controls, more military spending. People at the lower amygdala end are happier in general and experience less startle response. And brains differ on a continuum in responding to new information, uncertainty, fear, strangers. Biologically, humans have evolved for cooperation. We started off by saying that, but only for some people. And then this gets into the in-group versus out-group dynamics and testosterone and oxytocin. You know, these are the same hormones that warriors had and the increased sense of belonging, and they also reduce fear. So while they promote ethnocentric behavior and increase suspicion and rejection of others outside the tribe, the bottom line is that they, uh, the same thing that binds us can also blind us. That's how Fitzduff put it. So the need to belong is a major driver of war, of conflict. So here's a key point. Most people need to belong more than they need to be right. When beliefs are contradicted, the fMRI showed an increase in emotion, okay, so amygdala response, but no increase in cortex reasoning. When people are in conflict, they like things to be simple, and it is more likely that nuanced categories of people get hurt because they're confusing. Okay, so here's the punchline. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. <laughs> To all you mediators out there, don't over-rely on facts during conflict. Whoa, right? I mean, I know. Does that kind of blow your mind? I mean, as an attorney in rules of evidence, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> well, it does. And too, just because, you know, I think back on, you know, the, the so I'm a facilitative mediator. I think I've mentioned it on other episodes. And I think back to that facilitative model and one of the the main focuses at the beginning is the telling the stories phase where you're supposed to be getting like all the facts from each side so yeah <laughs> well that you know that telling the story phase i think is so important Rana, because yeah. it when you're really trained in listening you're listening to the content you know to the words but more than that you've got to be listening to the meta the What's going on underneath the words? What are the emotions behind the words? What's the why of the words being important? And in fact, I just dropped two, a two-part uh, episodes, I think number seven and eight of my podcast, just on this topic of listening, not just to the content, but to the why the content is important. And that's why that initial gush and letting somebody let it out, tell their story is uh, 
has therapeutic value, it's cathartic, and can also open the pathway towards resolution. Oh, before I forget, I wanted to say that little asterisk about fMRI scans. Even as someone who cites consistently to brain science, science, I bristle at how fashionable this has become in the mainstream media. The media loves to cover new fMRI results and the business world is hungry for the consumer brain to be decoded. Unfortunately, studies are often tiny because of the high costs of running the machine and interpreting the results and the data can be tough to interpret. There was a 2009 study of a salmon for instance, that showed that the fish's brain exhibited increased activity for emotional images. The only problem, the fish was dead. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Veronica, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I, well, with that, I guess we'll, we, we can go ahead and wrap things up. We, but, we can um, drop the mic there. Right? I know, oh, I know, sorry. right? It's attached to my head, I forgot. <laughs> It's okay. I have one I can drop. So, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, this has been so much fun. And I feel like I was like a student in your one of your classes. Um, I've always been fascinated about kind of the psychology of conflict and how it impacts decision making. So, I mean, you've given a lot of awesome takeaways. Um, you know, if any listeners want to learn more about your work, want to connect with you, how can they do so? They can just send me an email, lucia at pactumfactum.com. It's L U at pactum pactum that that means a done deal in latin um and i always respond to messages so and i love to connect with people that's how i tick very cool very cool well lucia this has been such great fun i really appreciate you coming on the mediate.com podcast you're welcome it was super fun thank <laughs> you veronica all right friends well that wraps up another great episode of the mediate.com podcast we'll talk to you next time This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.